BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As I expected, Mary Poppins practically perfect in every way. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris, and I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host, uh, and um, lover of old school Disney movies. So uh, excited to be diving into this movie with you, Steve Morris, and I'm in San Diego, California. <laughs> I'm excited too. And before we get into this film, we have some business to attend to, which is in our last episodes on First Blood. Yeah. We said that the next person to write us a five-star review, we will re- read their review on oh, the air. Okay. And we have that. And that person is Brandon Hopkins, who writes, mm-hmm. gentlemen, the best deep dive podcast by far online been following you all for years and the show just keeps getting better thank you both for all the time and effort you both put in keep up the great work all the best from a fellow cinephile oh thank you brandon very kind of you thank you very much brandon and you know what maybe this will be a tradition if we get some particularly exciting reviews you too could hear your review on the air yeah yeah (laughs) yeah uh, so, that is a very enthusiastic <laughs> agreement for my partner. <laughs> yeah, um, and of course, uh, those of you who are members of our Patreon, uh, you know, it's great to hear from you all when we do our weekly ad- or our monthly advisory uh, meetings and council meetings, uh, we've, which we've had a couple of already, um, to hear your thoughts on our show and how we, how much it's affected you, but also you know, a ways to possibly improve it or ways to – or movies for us to take a look at. And one of those movies is – what we're going to be tackling today. And if you guys want to, uh, you know, kind of look at the Patreon and take a look at all the benefits you've been getting, you can get for being a patron. If you're not a patron already, head on over to patreon.com slash the cinephiles. There's a lot there for you all to enjoy that Steve and I are are uh, really putting a lot of effort into making sure you're getting um, so much bang for your buck. I couldn't agree more. And as you said, John, this suggestion came from the advisory board. And it was so funny because when you and I first set up the board, we kind of went, well... Obviously, we're in charge of the show, and so we will take their advice under advisement, but they're not going to tell us what to do. And I swear, in both of our meetings, 
almost every suggestion they made, you and I were both like, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, that's a great idea. Steve, we were the Mr. Banks to those uh, kids <laughs> totally. at our advisory council saying the kind of uh, nanny that they were looking for. And in essence, this is the nanny they've chosen. Yeah, Because as soon as they said Mary Poppins, and the I don't, I don't remember who suggested it initially, but everyone on the board went, that's a great idea. And you and I went, man, we've just come out of a bunch of war movies, <laughs> First Blood, Great Escape. We're like, yes. Mary Poppins is the perfect antidote to those films. And I'm curious, my guess is your answer is going to be the same as mine, but how did you first come to Mary Poppins? Oh, yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, as a kid, uh, you know, Disney used to show, or ABC, I think, used to show Wonderful World of Disney. And, you know, where where we were at in the financial situation we were in, we couldn't always go to the theater, right? Uh, Pinocchio was one of those rare forays to the theater with my mom. Uh, where we went to see a Disney movie there. But most of the time, the Disney movies that I would watch were on TV, on ABC, and they would have the uh, big premiere and you'd watch it and sit there, you know, at that time when you couldn't like just dial it up on Disney Plus. You had to wait. Uh, you had to schedule it in your in your Sunday and sit down and watch it. And I just remember being absolutely blown away by this movie. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen it in quite some time. I completely forgot it was two hours and 23 minutes. Uh, so I was shocked by that. But um, I just had a, I remember it leaving a wonderful, uh, feeling inside of me and supercalifragilisticexpialidocious was a song that I've been singing in my head, uh, either as an earworm or as a fun little thing, uh, for decades now in my life. Yeah, it is. It is one of those, I will say a positive earworm. Like there's yeah, some where you're like, 100%. Jesus, get this song out of my head. And I mean, Clearly, the Sherman brothers who wrote all the music know how to get songs stuck in your head. Um, for me, I came to the film the same way. And it's so funny because, I, you know, I maybe we're the last generation who had this experience, which yeah. is that there were these movies that came out once a year. So right. you would watch the Ten Commandments, which came out right around, you know, Easter, Easter time. You would watch uh, the um, Willy Wonka came out once a year. Wizard of Oz played once a year. And of course, Mary Poppins played. And it was a family event. Like yeah. everybody sat down to watch this film. So I have no idea how old I was when I first saw it. Yeah, It's just always been part of my life. And it was funny. Uh, we had watched this uh, with Jackson when he was little, mm. but he hadn't, he had no memory of it because he, maybe he was three or four. Right. So this is the first, because I didn't watch bridge on the river Kwai with him or first blood. <laughs> so this is the first movie cinephiles movie in a while that I sat down to watch with Jackson. And I didn't know if he was going to like it because now he's 12 year old boy right. and he's into, you know, anything gross or violent or scatological. That's what his tastes are. Right. He absolutely loved it. He was sold from beginning to end. And it really is kind of a magical movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's a joy to it. There's a happiness to it. Um, there's a just feeling of um, longing for. Uh, that time when you were a kid and you, if you had the power to create a magical world or had someone to guide you into a magical world where you could really escape maybe the strict parents or maybe stuff that was going on and you could feel uh, loved, cared for, but also disciplined in a certain way. And so there was so much, there's so much about the film that's just magical. I guess that's the word yeah. really, Steve, is magical. And when you watch it every time, you can't help but be sucked into it. And, you know, watching it this time, the first 10, 15 minutes, I'm like, uh, grumpy, grumpy. Oh, I can, oh, the CGI. Oh, I can tell the special effects. Uh, oh, that's fine. And then as soon as Mary Poppins shows up, everything changes. And I think that's another one of the reasons why this film is so absolutely excellent. It is the effortless, confident, uh, incredible performance from Julie Andrews. 
which is kind of mind blowing to believe that this is one of her first films, if not her first film. And it first. is, it, it is her first. first. And yeah. so and the performance has such confidence to it that it absolutely blows you away to see. Plus she's quite beautiful. And I, oh, sure. I never thought about with Julie Andrews, to be honest with you in my entire life, but watching it, this time around, as I'm an older man, I'm looking at her and I'm going, this is actually a very beautiful woman in many ways. And so just kind of surprised me at how much uh, it was, how much fun it was to revisit it again for I'm sure. I mean, her performances in her, what I think are her first two movies, which is Mary Poppins and Sound of Music, are mm. astounding. I mean, she is as good as she is in Mary Poppins. She might be even better in Sound of Music. Mm. Um, a movie which I almost have a feeling you might not have ever seen. I have never seen Sound of Music. Um, and so it's one of those ones that I was like, I don't know if that's really my cup of tea, but we may have to finally, one of these days, uh, rectify that and watch it and then do a, Dude, do a show on it. It's a great movie. I, 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 I am, I am confident and particularly as a lover of Christopher Plummer, which I know that you are yes, seeing him in that role. He's awesome. Chang! It's a- yeah, it's a really good movie. So um, obviously that has some pre-production, but, but there's actually a whole movie of pre-production, which is Saving Mr. Banks. Have you seen Saving Mr. Banks? I have not, no. Uh, and that's one that I'm going to watch. Honestly, we're recording today. I may just put it on later on today and watch it to give me, give me even more context on what inspired them to do that movie. So I'm looking forward to that. Watch with the great Emma Thompson, Colin Farrell, and Tom Hanks. So yeah. Uh, God, I'm really torn now about how much pre-production to give because that I want you to say, because oh, no, the, don't worry about me. This is for the fans. So please give all the so, so sorry, John, spoiler alert, but <laughs> PL Travers, which is the author of the Mary Poppins books is a really weird lady. Mm-hmm. Like she is very strange. Her life to this day is still a bit of a mystery. Oh yeah. Her, her real name is Helen Lyndon Goff. She, uh, Travers, which is the name she took as her pen name, that's actually her father's name. And her father and her father's death is a huge part of what formed her character and is also a huge part of Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, She grew up in Australia, which she totally lied about. Basically, almost all of her biography, everything she ever told anybody through her lifetime was a lie. (laughs) She just totally invented a, a, a childhood and a life that wasn't hers at all. Her father was a bank manager oh. in Australia with a major and ended up being fatal drinking problem. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the, to the point where he was at a, a large bank and then his the bank sent him to a smaller town with much less responsibilities to deal with his drinking. Yeah. He did not deal with his drinking. They ended up being really, really poor and really, it was really bad. And she watched her father drink herself to death. While he read, he would recite Irish poetry to her and made up stories. And this is a lot of what Saving Mr. Banks is about, is is her relationship with her father. And um, But, I mean, her life goes on to be just totally bizarre. Like, she adopted a baby yes. who was one of two twins. So she split up two twins and then lied to her son and said that, no, your father died in the tropics when her father was alive and he was adopted. He didn't find out any of this stuff until, like, after she died. <laughs> Um, she, and she basically said all records of my life should be destroyed when I died and no one should ever write a biography and they didn't do that. And that's how we get saving Mr. Banks and find out a little bit about her. Um, the, the way this came to Walt Disney is that his daughters read the book in the late thirties, read the Mary Poppins books and they loved it. And he spent the next 20 years trying to get the rights to this thing. Wow. 
1944, right after VE Day, basically, he sends his brother to Europe to go ask P.L. Travers if Disney can do the movie. Mm. And she said no. He offered, you know, he kept raising the money. He kept making more offers. In 1959, Walt goes to London himself. This is how she describes Walt Disney. She says, talking to Walt was like talking to a friendly, charming uncle who looked from a gold pocket watch and dangled it enticingly in front of your eyes. <laughs> Finally, and clearly, Walt must have known this story w- w- could be magic for him. Yes. And, and, and I'm sure he was a little, he enjoyed the fact that she didn't say yes immediately. So a bit of the chase, a bit of the hunt uh, got, uh, was a part of this as well. Well, and this is the thing. There, uh, There's a director of this movie. There are writers in this movie. There are all sorts of creative, amazing creative people that worked on this movie. And I would never minimize any of their contributions. Sure. This is Walt Disney's movie. You know? Yeah. yeah. Like, he was there on the set. He's there for every song, for every script, for every drawing. He is there. And, and it's so funny. Are are there negative things that people can say about Walt Disney? And, and certainly in today's world with the way... Yeah. Our, our ideas have changed about stuff. I mean, Walt would not be happy about gay days at Disneyland. That would not be a thing that he was in favor of. Yeah. Walt, Walt Disney is an absolutely amazing human being. Yeah. You can uh, cut this. What about Jew days? You can cut that. You can cut that. Sorry. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to not, but, but I probably will. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, no, he, he was not a fan of my people. No, he's anti-Semitic. It's, it's what it was, and so was Ford, and so was a lot of people around. Well, the, uh, I mean, you know, so funny. We, ju- decades, we literally just did a short on this, and so I think I yeah. probably will leave this in, but we literally did just did a short. Uh, it'll be coming on Patreon, I think, the week after this episode releases, which is to talk about J.K. Rowling and censorship and how we yeah. deal with people. And we brought up um, Thomas Jefferson, and we're talking – like, there are a lot of people who I think – we have to be able to look at them just as we look at movies on the cinephiles yep. is that we go, this is what this is. This is maybe how we might feel about this differently today, but I'm not throwing out Walt Disney yeah. because he was anti-Semitic, even though he clearly was, you know? Right. And that's a personal thing. Like everyone has their own lines and their own decisions and their own, uh, uh, you know, uh, restrictions they want to make in their own lives, depending yeah. on, uh, on their feelings about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing that Walt didn't really tell anybody was that the deal he made in 61 for Mary Poppins was only an option. And she had in the contract that she could cancel at any time. Wow. That she could kill the project. Wow. Yeah. So, so he goes in and the amount of resources he put towards making this movie, knowing that she could kill it is a lot. And the, the first resources he brings to it are, as we mentioned before, the Sherman brothers, Richard and Bob Sherman. I think I've disrespected them over the years and didn't oh. give them the respect. I would because, and maybe it's because I mean their 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 first big song is you know talk about irritating earworms. Mm. Their first big song is "It's a Small World," right? Which was written for the '64 World Exposition, which is where that ride debuted. Right. And I hate that song. <laughs> wow! Okay. I mean, it just like it is one of those like if if I'm at Disneyland and I have to go through that hellish ride, <laughs> listen to that song over and over again, it just drives me nuts. Okay, fair point. And, and fair point. I think I just kind of went. Well, they make the kid music, but man, they make great music. They're great. I mean, there's a gift, right? Yeah. You know, like with Mencken and uh, Tim Rice. There's a gift if you can come into a Disney movie and create songs for the movie that are just um, indelible and last yeah. the test of time. 
you know, everyone's caught up in trying to write songs in in the mainstream pop or rock or R&B or metal or whatever you want to say, uh, uh, charts. But there's a special gift in coming in and writing songs, not just music, songs specifically for these films and having them, in essence, be bangers for those kinds of films or those kinds of situations. And certainly Sherman Brothers did that all over the place for decades. And this movie, top to bottom, there's not a weak song in it. I mean, they're, they're all great. What I didn't know was there, so they're they're the um, children of Russian Jewish immigrants. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, Walt might have been anti-Semitic, but he knew how to hire the smart Jews. You know, I guess so. Yeah, um, and allegedly, uh, what I, allegedly we don't know about this. Sure. And what what I didn't realize was that their dad was a songwriter. He was oh. a Tin Pan Alley songwriter. His name was Al Sherman, and he wrote "You Gotta Be a Football Hero." Yeah, I know that song. Of course you do. Gotta be a football hero. Yeah, yeah. I remember that song. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they start writing for the Mouseketeers on the Mickey Mouse show. So they they wrote songs for Annette Funicello. They wrote yeah. they wrote music for the absent-minded professor. As I mentioned, they did It's a Small World. Mm-hmm. Later on, they did, you know, the great jungle book songs, songs mm-hmm. for Charlotte's Web, Winnie the Pooh, Sword and Stone. The non-Disney movie they did was Chitty Chitty Bang Bang for Albert Broccoli, (laughs) also with Dick Van Dyke, also with great songs. Then they go back to Disney and they do the Aristocats, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Uh, I mean, they they are the voice of Disney musicals for 20 years, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So here's how this comes about. So Walt gets the rights. So he calls in the Sherman Brothers and says, I think I'm interested in having you work on this. And he gives them the first book. And the thing to know about the Mary Poppins book, and yes, I did read the first Mary Poppins book because it was, you know, very short on Audible. And uh, they, they, it, it, the thing about these books is there's no story. There's no overarching story. It's just little vignettes. This adventure, this adventure, this adventure. Nothing ties them together. Right. They take the first book, Sherman Brothers take it home, they read it, and they underline which vignettes they thought out of the first book would be useful to string together in a story for the movie. Mm. They come back the next day with Walt. They show, here's the chapters that we think would work for a movie. Walt pulls out his own copy of the book and has the exact same six chapters underlined. Oh, wow. And so here, and here's what's crazy about how this movie comes together. Nobody wrote a script. (laughs) What? I mean, eventually there was a script. Right. But what it really was, was the Sherman Brothers and this guy named Don DeGrady, who is a screenwriter and an artist. Mm -hmm. And the Sherman Brothers, would they go, okay, we're going to do, you know, this... Uh, they go into the animated world and they have that adventure. And so they're trying to come up with a song and they're playing around the piano, come up with lyrics and Don DeGrady or DeGrady is sitting in the room mm-hmm. sketching. And that's how the movie comes together. And Walt would come in and hear what they were working on and give them some notes and have some thoughts. And then he would walk out and they would go back and they would, and it was just kind of piece by piece. They're putting this thing together. Um, by the way, the books take place in the 30s, and it was the Sherman Brothers' idea to move it to the Edwardian era and to be around 1910, which I think is a great choice. Yeah, I agree. They worked for two straight years, so from 61 to 63, having no idea that Pamela Travers could cancel at any time. They bring in a, a screenwriter, finally, after about a year and a half, named Bill Walsh. Who's, he, now, he's starting to write the screenplay based on the songs and based on all these sketches they have, right. and then they fly P.L. Travers out. Uh, all of which they recorded all the meetings as they're playing songs for her as they're, and she hated all of it. And that is what the movie saving Mr. Banks is about. Oh, okay. So I will leave you, John. <laughs> to, <laughs> and you know what? I think it's a good movie. I, I liked it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
They wrote 32 songs. Only 14 are used in the movie. Other ones ended up in the Jungle Book. They ended up in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Right. And the biggest thing, and this is the biggest change, is that they dis- it was the Sherman Brothers' idea to create faults in the parents, that they are too busy with their own stuff to pay attention to their kids. And that is the thread that binds the whole movie together. Right. And P.L. Travers hated it. I mean, so hated this idea. it's the only way Mary Poppins can exist in this adaptation um, is if the parents are kind of uh, not as on top of these children as they need to be. So it's I mean, interesting she'd have an issue with it, yeah. I mean, it'll be I what I'm really looking forward to, I do want you to watch it because I'm sure this is gonna be a two-part conversation, is that we could start part two yeah. <laughs> if you want with what your reaction to saving <laughs> Mr. Banks is. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Anyway, she was there for, she had 30 days to consider, and she finally did agree, obviously, to let them make the movie. Mm. Uh, by the way, one thing cool thing about saving Mr. Banks is that Richard Sherman, who is still alive, yeah. was on the set while they were shooting it, watching Jason Schwartzman play him. Oh, wow. And that's pretty, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. How would you have thought, felt about Betty Davis playing Mary Poppins? Ooh, no. <laughs> no. Uh, other people up for the role were Mary Martin, which makes sense, and Angela Lansbury. Oh, Angela Lansbury would have been a great choice. Yeah. She would have been great. But then everybody is watching Ed Sullivan, as you, as you did in the early 60s, and they have Richard Burton and Julie Andrews come on to do songs from Camelot. All right. Richard calls his brother Bob and says she's perfect. They show up at the Disney Studios the next day, and everybody is talking about Julie Andrews from Camelot. Oh. Walt, right around the same time, is in New York and sees Camelot on Broadway, mm. thinks exactly the same thing. He goes backstage because he goes, I'm Walt Disney. I'd like to go <laughs> backstage. <laughs> And he meets her and her husband, who's Tony Walton. Tony Walton is a well-known designer. Mm. And as he's, and basically, and this is why I say this is Walt's movie. He didn't consult with anyone about asking Julie Andrews to play this part. He just saw her in Camelot and walked backstage and said, I'd like you to do this part. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And he asked Tony Walton, what do you do? And they go, oh, he's a designer. He says, oh, well, when you come to LA, why don't you bring your sketches? And Tony Walton ends up being the main designer on Mary Poppins. How crazy. Yeah. I'm sure that must have been like just okay. How do I get her? I'll ask her. Maybe oh, let's bring her husband over. Let's see what he can do. Great, this two for one. This works. She's happy. He's happy. We might have a good movie here. It's smart business. Unfortunately, Julie Andrews couldn't actually agree to play Mary Poppins right away. Oh, because at the same time, Jack Warner has bought the rights to My Fair Lady, a role that Julie Andrews originated in London and on Broadway, and she is waiting for Jack Warner to decide whether or not to cast her as uh, Eliza Doolittle. Mm. Jack Warner, as you know, does not cast her as Eliza Doolittle, casts Audrey Hepburn instead, and now she can say, okay, I will do Mary Poppins. Ironically, both films launching both of those careers. So either way, she was going to be set. Yeah. The answer is probably. The director is Robert Stevenson, who I know knew very little about. Yeah. Um, He directed Orson Welles and Joan Fontaine and Jane Eyre. Oh yeah, I remember Jane Eyre. I watched that's one of my first films I watched in my when I started watching all the Wells stuff. Interesting film. Yeah, not not a great film. No, not a great film, but interesting. And and he, he it's he's like a go to director. So he directs. He directed Old Yeller. He directed episodes of the Zorro TV show. He directed Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Oh, kidnapped the absent minded professor, that darn cat. And then his last feature 
maybe it's the movie that set me on the pathway to being frightened of horror films because his last feature, not a horror film, but for my four-year-old brain certainly was. And that is the Shaggy DA, which <laughs> sent me screaming out of the theater because a dude turned into a dog. Yeah. Dean Jones. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. Yeah. But by the way, this is Mary Poppins is Hollywood's first original musical since Gigi in 1958. Wow, they hadn't. Uh, everything else was adapted from Broadway musicals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you like to enter the world of Mary Poppins? I will in just a second, Steve. I have some pre-production that I want to throw out to you. Oh, sure. And it's interesting. Everyone talks about Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews and the music and the Sherman Brothers, right? And the magic of this film. But I do want to give a little background on David Tomlinson, who plays. Mr. Oh, yeah, Banks. please. Right. I don't have any background on him. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a fascinating story. He had started out in on stage and in film just before the Second World War, gets recruited into the Second World War, um, has a crash in his first flight uh, there as a fighter, and ends up becoming a teacher teaching flight to mm. other RAF pilots there. He meets a widowed socialite who is the um, daughter of one of the presidents of the New York Life Insurance Company. They get together in 1943. She was widowed because her husband was a fighter, was a, a fought in the World War and died in, in 41. They get married in September of 1943. She has two kids from that previous marriage. Three months later, in December of 1943, after they've been married in September of 1943, they tell her that she cannot bring her kids to see David Tomlinson where he's at. I think it's in Britain. Um, and in a absolute panic, she commits murder suicide. Her and her two kids jump out of the window together and die. Oh my God. And this is what David Tomlinson has to deal with as a young man um, in the middle of world war two in 19. 19- Jesus. Yes. And then after this is over this situation, he does end up getting, remarried again a few years later the, and and, mar- and stayed married to her all the way to the end of his life. Um, in I think 2000 is when he passed. But um, when he was uh, moving along with his life, he discovered that his father had lived a double life. And it was one of his, one of his brothers who saw his father as he was on a bus, saw his father through a window, having tea sitting up in bed in a foreign house. And this is what exposed that his father had been living a double life. During the week, he was with his mistress and her children. And on the weekends, he was with his actual first family. Um, And when he was confronted by this, the father was absolutely nonplussed by this and said, no, I I just simply fell in love with two women. You guys have to deal with it, is how he dealt with it. And he tried tried to (laughs) get Tomlinson to change his last name. Uh, And David said this in his biography, because he wrote a fantastic biography, and he said, that I, I believe he tried to get uh, his last name changed so that there he wouldn't get found out in the general public of what he was doing, living a double life, uh, because he did not stop after they exposed him and everything. Like, and apparently, his, his David's mother, uh, uh, his father's first wife, uh, found out about this when David's father was in the First World War and sent the, a letter to the mistress, but it, it, it sent a letter to his wife, but he had was writing to his mistress. And that's how she found out about it. And apparently she had to grin and bear it because I guess, you know, because of course women had to deal with a lot of shit back then. And not that they don't deal with now, but like certainly back then that idea of like, uh, you can't divorce, you don't get divorced, that kind of stuff. So 
later on, he has, um, I think, seven children, five to seven children with his second wife. One of his children is autistic, and his third kid is autistic, and this becomes the relationship of his life. And uh, a number of people said this in uh, evaluating his life, that his relationship with his father and his relationship with his son and giving the care and attention for his son is what really kind of solidified him as a human being and kept him on the path and kept him going and kept him out of the dark places because he knew he had to be around to take care of his son to make sure he was okay in the world. Because in the world at the time, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, they don't really understand how to deal with autistic children at that time. So he felt it was his life's purpose, life's goal to make sure that this happened. And so after he passed, uh, his son uh, is still, uh, I think, still alive, but um, they had put him in a community here and his, his uh, other uh, brothers visit him and his wife uh, or his widow visits him and what have you. So it's just a fascinating story about a guy who did a lot of things. And of course, bed knobs and broomsticks and um, the love bug and these other films, Tom Jones, which was an Oscar winning film for um, uh, Albert, uh, for Oliver Reed, all of that. Oh, sorry, for Albert Finney, all of that. So just all of this going on in his life. And yet he was able to play these like, um, interesting, uh, twit-like, foppish kind of guys or English gent kind of guys who are a bit out of touch with things that are going on, find the humor and the evilness every time he played these roles. So just fascinating to think about what you go through as an actor, aside from what you do on screen. And he was able to like power through and soldier along. And it speaks volumes to his character and his strength, for sure. Wow. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. That is an amazing story. And, um, yeah. and it, and it also just goes to like, well, this is why acting is acting is that, yeah. you know, there, there are people who are known for playing crazy people who are the most calm, rational people of the world. There are people that are known for playing like this guy, totally straight foppish twit British guy yeah. who has yeah. a totally different background. Yeah. Um, wow. That is, and the story of that, the murder suicide, it's just. I mean, oh. two months after getting married, and simply because she cannot take her kids to go see their stepfather, she uh, uh, commits suicide. Yeah, it's just hard. You know, clearly there was a lot of mental health stuff going on yeah. for her to do something like that and then take the children with her. Just heartbreaking on so many levels. But to be able to survive that and keep going, you know, it's a fascinating story. And there was a one-man play about him that came out in 2019 on stage mm. um, that apparently was well-received. So, you know, just fascinating stuff about a guy who doesn't get talked about a lot when it comes yeah. to Mary Poppins. So I just wanted to give him some love. Well, and now we're going to move from that difficult and somewhat tragic story into the wonderful world of Mary Poppins. Let's do it. <laughs> Tinkerbell, hit the magic. Um, and we start uh, with these beautiful paintings of London. These paintings are by uh, Peter Ellenshaw. And I think it's so funny because as a kid, I didn't process that I wasn't looking at London. I, you know what? I didn't know that they were paintings. It was just, and of course, they could have gone and filmed aerial shots of London. They, you know, they have a big budget. And I think th those paintings are so key because it's the choice to put this in this kind of beautiful, somewhat storybook, not real world. Yeah. Um, I love looking at Julie Anders sitting on that cloud as we roll the credits. <laughs> it's so weird. She's gangster. She's gangster sitting on that cloud. Oh, yeah. Uh, riding in. I'm told. Yeah. And then we cut to Dick Van Dyke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, by the way, Cary Grant was the first choice for this oh, role. That makes so much sense. He would have been great. Accent. The other choice was Danny Kaye. Oh, yeah. That's a great choice. It would have been great. Apparently, the director, Stevenson, uh, Nick's Danny Kaye. 
Uh, the Dick Van Dyke Show. I know, and I was like, I I love Danny Kaye. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Dick Van Dyke Show is a massive, huge hit on television right at this moment. Hmm. And Walt met Dick Van Dyke at a party or something, and liked him and said, "Hey, do you want to be in Mary Poppins?" <laughs> That's how this happened. Wow. He is basically the character of Bert is a combo of a bunch of different characters that pop up in the Mary Poppins stories. Oh, okay. And now we must talk at least briefly about his terrible accent. <laughs> oh, ladies and gents, comical poem, suitable for the occasion, extemporized and thought up before your very eyes. Well, here's what I want to say. I understand people being upset about his accent or not liking his accent. But the reason this film endures, obviously because of Julie Andrews, but also there is an earnestness to Dick Van Dyke's performance. There is a sweetness. There is a very light touch and a magicalness and a funness, for lack of a better term, to his performance that I think overcomes any issues with the accent. And it's not like super terrible. I get it. I get how some British people might get mad at right now, but you, it's a combo of his a little bit of American and a little bit of that Cockney thing. But he's not like, how you doing, Ed Governor? Like he isn't doing, <laughs> you know, he isn't overdoing it. It's just on the edges in certain moments. And yeah, in some of the songs, sure, there are patches where it feels like a little bit too much. But overall, I think there's a real authenticity to his performance that overcomes that. So, you know, yeah, have an issue with it. I get it. But I, I don't think it takes anything away from the uh, how much he believes the lines he's saying, which is what you really want from a character like this. Yep. That's how I feel too. I mean, it's like, I think an actor has a bunch of jobs and one of his jobs was to do the perfect Cockney accent. <laughs> and he doesn't do that particular part of the actor's job that well, True. but everything you said, I mean, Bert, particularly, cause I have a lot of thoughts. We have to discuss Mary Poppins character. Bert is the heart of the movie. Oh, he yeah. is, he is consistently the most caring, loving person in the film. Yep. And uh, by the way, Dick knew that his accent is terrible. In 2017, he received an award from the uh, British, British Academy of Film and Television, and this yeah. is his speech. He said, I appreciate this opportunity to apologize to the members of BAFTA for inflicting on them the most atrocious Cockney accent in the history of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> he also, by the way, we're going to talk about the kids and what they went through on this movie. Oh, yeah. sure. Bert was constantly making, or Dick Van Dyke was constantly making these kids laugh. Oh, like why wouldn't they i mean he's such a and, great and, performer and well and even i've i've now listened to two autobiographies of dick van dykes because <laughs> they were like on sale on audible and they were short oh, nice. he is genuinely seems to be one of the nicest humans ever in the history of hollywood everybody says this everybody says this yep. steve about him and even when he came back for the new mary poppins and mary poppins returns there with emily blunt he was so excited to be back and everybody spoke about how great it was to work with him again. And so, yeah, just one of these rare guys, man, that yep. uh, is able to sail through and there's hardly anybody who says anything negative about him. I'm sure he had to turn a blind eye to a lot of things in Hollywood uh, to be able to do what he had to do, but, you know, never let it affect how he was, how he treated people, which I think is a, is a great hallmark of him as a person. And we meet him being a one-man band, <laughs> which seems like a really hard thing, even to fake pulling off, which he's kind of faking it. Yeah. It seems like a hard thing to be. Uh, and he's making up these lyrics for all the people around him. And then there's this moment, the wind comes in, and he gets distracted and sings. Wind's in the east, mist coming in. Like something is brewing, and 
about to begin. Can't put me finger on what lies in store. But I feel what's to happen. All happened before. There's two magical characters, right, Steve? I mean, it's it's Bert and Mary. There, yeah. Bert senses Mary is coming. And of course, later when Mary and Bert meet up with the kids, we hear that Bert has known her for quite some time, apparently, and known of her energy for quite some time. So yeah, it's an, it's a it's a fun beginning because he's doing that whole thing and then he asks for money from everybody and only the older lady and one older gentleman gives him money, which I think is a, a little bit of a commentary. I don't know. Sometimes I read too much into things, but I think it's a little bit of a commentary about how, you know, people um, want to be entertained, but they don't want to pay for that entertainment, you know? Well, I, I, I think it's important that there is an important distinction in this movie between the world, the real world, as represented by Mr. Banks and yes. responsibility in this and fun. Mm-hmm. And people, and part of the theme of this movie is people not giving enough credit or importance to play and fun. Yeah. And them not paying him after they listened to his music and all laughed is, I think, totally think part of that, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, strangely enough, he turns right to camera and says, Oh, it's you. Hello. <laughs> Apparently, we want to go see number 17, Cherry Tree Lane, and he's walking along talking about it and introduces us to Admiral Boom. Time gun ready. Ready in charge, sir. Who has turned his house into a ship. And by the way, all this is built on a soundstage. It mm. was designed by Tom, Tony Walton, which is Julie Andrews' husband. Yeah. And Walt's idea was that it should never look really realistic. It should look like a stage. Like, oh. it, it just a little, just like a really, really, really good set in the theater looks. Yeah, yeah. By the way, the soundstage it was shot on is now the Julie Andrews soundstage. Oh, that's sweet. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yeah, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. A word of advice, young man. Storm signals are up at number 17. Bit of heavy weather brewing there. We go inside 17 Cherry Tree Lane, and we see chaos. 
Yeah. We see the cook and Ellen, which is Retta Shaw and Hermione Badley. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Okay. Uh, and they are arguing because Katie Nana, the latest nanny for the kids, is going to quit. Yeah. She's done with it. I had no idea who was playing Katie Nana. Who is playing Katie Nana? It is Elsa Lanchester, which is a name I didn't know. Okay. She is the bride of Frankenstein. Oh, 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 oh really? Yep. I did not know that. Oh, I didn't know it either. Wow. Not only that, she is from a storied theatrical family. Oh. Would you like to know how the Bride of Frankenstein became Katie Nana in Mary Poppins? Let's do it. So this is going to be a four-parter, by the way. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, this what, what's so fun, what's amazing about this movie, this is an amazing movie. Yeah. It's just top to bottom. It's so interesting. And it, I think I kind of, again, like I thought about the Sherman Brothers. Like, oh, it's a kid's movie. It's a really good kid's movie, whatever. And I'm like, no, the, the, the art and work and craftsmanship and stories that went into making this movie are just as interesting as the stories that went into making Bridge on the River Kwai, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... The character Jane is played by Karen Detrice. Karen Detrice, both of her parents were very, very well-known theater people in England. Oh, interesting. Okay. Like Royal Shakespeare folks. Right. Her godfather, Jane's godfather, Karen Detrice's godfather, is Charles Lawton. Oh, the legendary Charles Lawton. Okay. Whose wife is Elsa Lanchester. And so it's actually Jane and Jane's mom's idea to get Elsa in this movie. And they are who recommended it to Walt. And Walt thought about it and went, that's perfect. And Walt gave her the role. Wait, wait. So the Bride of Frankenstein married Charles Lawton? Yes, sir. Who, if I'm not incorrect, played the Hunchback of Notre Dame yes. in the 1920s. Is that right? I, I, I'm I'm going to look that I mean, up. No, the Lon Chaney is the one who, well, he played Hunchback, but I think Lawton played, I think Lawton played Hunchback in, in maybe in the 50s. Is it in the 50s? Okay, okay, okay. But yes, yeah, right. Lon Chaney played it, yeah, back in the old days. Right, right. So I, that's fascinating. <laughs> wow, that is a fascinating story. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and and mom was in tons of stuff. She was also in Cheech and Chong's Corsican Brothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then again, because this is what, you know, I'm, you've done this too. It's like I, you went down a rabbit hole oh, cool. on on David uh, Tomlinson. Tomlinson, yeah. So I went down a rabbit hole on the Detrice family because right. her father is Roy Detrice. Roy Detrice like, was the dad in um, Amadeus? Is that him? Yep. That yeah. is Jane's dad. Wow. He also is Grandmaster Paisel in Game of Thrones. Yes. And then I'm like, wait, but I still know his name. And he, and what I found out is that he read all the audiobooks for the Game of Thrones books. Oh. One of the great narrators ever, Roy Detrice. He has two, I know this is off the topic of Mary Poppins, <laughs> he has two entries in the Guinness Book of World Records. One entry is for doing more characters on an audiobook than anyone in history, which was on Game of Thrones. Okay. And the other one is that he was did a one-man show called uh, Brief Lives, which was a three-hour-long one-man show. Hmm which he did for 1,782 performances. Good God. And has a Guinness Book of World Records for most solo performances. It's incredible. <laughs> Again, nothing to do with Mary Poppins, <laughs> but I just was like, oh, wow. Uh, so Charles Lawton did play the Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1939 mm. when he played him 
which is a few years after Mutiny on the Bounty when he played uh, uh, the captain there. And then the Canterville Ghost, which is one of my, which was my first experience with uh, seen it. with uh, Charles Lawton. A very funny, sweet film uh, about him. But yeah, yeah, great stuff. Man. Very interesting. What a so, weird little so, world. Yeah. Needless to say, Katie Nana is angry and she is quitting because the little beasts have run away from me for the last time. Wait, are we going back to the movie? Okay, good. I just want. Yeah, to- <laughs> we're back in. It must be somewhere. Did you look around the zoo in the park? You know how Jane and Michael is. Cool. You don't think the lion could have got at them, do you? There's a lot of kind of casual joking about possible death in this movie, by the way. Yeah, there is. And they're arguing about this when in comes mom. Winifred, played by Glennis Johns. Mm-hmm. So here's how this went down. Walt th- said, oh, Glennis Johns would be perfect, calls her up. Again, Walt is just doing all the casting himself and says, I'd like you to do Mary Poppins, which Glennis Johns took to mean that he wanted her to play the role of Mary Poppins. Oh, wow. So she comes in for a meeting expecting to be handed the role of Mary Poppins and has to be explained, oh, no, we want you to play mom. Did it? She basically says... Well, I mean, maybe if I had my own number, then I would consider it. Oh. <laughs> and Walt said, oh, that's funny because the boys, being the Sherman brothers, they're working on a number for you right now. <laughs> and she goes, okay, well, we'll see. Well, <laughs> the, she walks out. Walt picks up the phone and calls the Sherman brothers. He said, you guys got to work on a number for mom. Boys, give me a suffragette movement number immediately. <laughs> Which they did. And they called her in her hotel the afternoon, that afternoon to sing the first verse. That's hilarious. On yep. so many levels. Yep. <laughs> and then she's in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and and it's so funny that this is the, 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 I didn't understand because the movie so focuses on dad. It's really yeah, yeah, yeah. dad's got to make the change. But mom is just as disconnected from the kids as dad is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and we go right into the suffragette song about, which I love, which I think is a great song. And I think it's, it's, it's great. It's a great sort of addition to the story. We're clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. We are 40. Four minutes into this episode, and we just got through the first scene of the, of the film. <laughs> I'd let you know where we're at, ladies and gentlemen, where we're going, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, yeah. strap in, strap yeah. in. Well, I'll tell you, though, I've had a ball in these first 43 minutes. Yeah, so have I. So have I. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to Mary yet. Um, and, and I do love throughout the song, Katie and Anna just desperately trying to quit and getting, you know, wrangled into the song. What, let me ask you this. What do you think the commentary they're making with this initial song? I mean, she's come from the suffragette movement and she's cheering on the fact that one of the women were arrested and throwing pamphlets as they were being led away joyfully and all this kind of stuff. So clearly this is meant to offer some kind of character or some kind of commentary, you know? And I, and I, I always find it fascinating because people nowadays are like, I've seen the, the anger against the Barbie movie and people are like, oh, it's anti-men. One of her first lyrics of the mom and Mary Poppins is how stupid men are. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Like this idea of making fun of men has been in our content for decades. I'm always fascinated by people who think they just unearthed it in a movie or in a piece of entertainment. And it's because we are the dominant uh, gender 
It's a patriarchal world. It's been a patriarchal world, rather, for numerous, numerous decades. So giving her this as she's coming in, she's clearly caring about a cause, but it seems like the cause is keeping her from, or she's able to care about this cause because she can pawn off her kids on a nanny. You know what I'm saying? So it's an interesting commentary about the aloofness of people of wealth uh, with their children and with their lives and whatever. Uh, So they can seem like they have this illusion of control and causing and being socially active, but while they uh, while they hire a nanny to take care of their children, you know what I'm saying? The balance and stuff. It's interesting. No, that's why I, I said this before we got on the mic. The more I think about this movie, this is a, there's a lot of weird stuff in this movie. <laughs> and and I I mean, first of all, you know, you know the expressions of punching up and punching down when yeah. we talk about comedy is well, of course we're going to make fun of the men because the men are in charge. Right. You know that I we have to. Works. Yeah, I mean that's you know what. Yes, the, there are times where humor punches down. But, you know, dad is clearly in charge of this world and the suffragette movement. And what's that's what's weird about it, though, is that I think in in a political sense, well, the suffragette movement is pushing against back against the patriarchy. Yeah, that's true. But your point is also true, which is that it's she's it's like she's enjoying the show of the suffragette movement while someone else takes care of her kids. Right. You know, right. And someone else gets arrested. But her. Yeah. Right. Right. So, because because the banks are a privileged family, you know, one hundred percent. We got a lot of servants running around, you know, keeping stuff going. Mm-hmm. They finally get to the end, and Katie Nannett says the kids have disappeared again, and and Winifred says, "Katie Nana, this is really too careless of you. Doesn't it make the third time this week?" The fourth, madam. And I, for one, have had my fill of it. I'm not one to speak ill of the children. When do you expect them home? I really couldn't say enough. You'd be good enough to compute my wages. I'll... Oh, gracious, Kate and Anna, you're not leaving. And that is when Winifred realizes she's leaving. Yeah. And just as we're as she's begging her to stay, we realize what time it is, and Ellen yells, Ghost, everyone! And they all run to grab the breakables. Admiral Boom counts it down and fires. And this sequence of things flying around and everybody grabbing them and pushing things back and at the end, like slapping the wall so that all the pictures reset. It's an amazing practical effects sequence. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just an amazing practical effects sequence because each one of these things has to happen differently. You know, there's all, all sorts of crew members off camera, I'm sure, with wires and levers and switches and magnets and all these things to make all these things happen. But then you have all the actors who had to practice this over, and this was a lot of practice, because they look so casual, right? Like, that's the yeah. key to it, is they look like they've done this a million times. And and I have a weird thing to bring up in our okay. already extremely long podcast. <laughs> so I, as I know, I know I mentioned before, I listened to the David Chang podcast, and David Chang's a famous chef, and they were talking about restaurants and how hard it is if you're really going to deliver on a great meal, particularly at the really high end. And the thing that they brought up is a reference that I know that you know, and my guess is that you love, which is the Al Pacino speech in any given Sunday. That's the best part of the movie. Everything else in that movie is terrible, but that speech is one of the greatest monologues in the history of film. Yes. It is so good. And the phrase that he uses over and over again is, it's a game of inches. We claw and with our fingernails. We claw with our fingernails for that inch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the fucking difference. 
between winning and losing. And that is what David Chang is saying. It's every little tiny detail and scrambling to get each little detail perfect is what makes for a great meal. And this scene, go watch it again and watch the other ones later on, particularly the one with the piano and dad. Like, this is a game of inches. This is Walt and a whole bunch of people going, we're going to put so much into this and practice so hard to make this little moment magical. You know, it's, it's a game of fucking inches. And now we get to David Tomlinson, as you mentioned, Mr. Banks. He's walking up. How are things in the world of finance? Never better. Money's sound. Credit rates are moving up, up, up. And the British pound is the admiration of the world. And Admiral Boom is trying to warn him of stuff. And Banks is not paying attention. The wind's coming up and the glass is falling. Don't like the look of it. Good, good, good. Banks, shouldn't wonder if you weren't staring into a nasty piece of weather. Banks! And who does uh, Dad run into as he's walking up to his house? But Katie Nana, who he helps with her luggage. Absentmindedly. Let me get that for you, Katie. Yeah. Well, because this guy who thinks he's in total control of his life yeah. is totally disconnected from his life. He has no idea what's going on around him. I feel a surge of deep satisfaction, much as a king astride his noble steed. Thank you. When I return from daily strife to hearth and wife, how pleasant is the life I lead. By the way, we brought up the topic of a leitmotif before or a theme, and that's a musical thing that gets played for a character or for an idea. Obviously, we talked about it when we talked about Jaws. We talked about it in other films that we've done. Mm -hmm. If you want to hear, if you want to just be real clear on what a leitmotif is, this movie is actually perfect because The Life I Lead, which is the Banks song, Mr. Banks's song, yeah. every time he's around, that's what's playing. Spoonful of Sugar plays, uh, Chim Chimery plays. Jolly Holiday plays, all of these things play repeatedly throughout the movie. And this is a case where the songwriters, the Sherman brothers, really created leitmotifs that got used in the score. I run my home precisely on schedule. At 6.01, I march through my door. My slippers, sherry and pipe are due. At 6.02, consistent is the life I lead. George, they're missing. Splendid, splendid. And as his wife is trying to tell him about the children and the chaos and everything is going wrong, he's explaining to her how perfectly his house runs and it's all on a schedule. And he is, again, totally, totally disconnected from reality. Yeah. That's why I think this is a great introduction to both of these parents. They're both caught up in their own worlds and one is um, unaware of his children not being around and the other one is unaware of how her not being around uh, is causing these children to act out in certain ways. Uh, and so it's like the oblivious, not the obliviousness, but certainly the detachment of their responsibilities. Because as you said, they are rich, privileged people, so they can go and do these and create these fantasies about their lives and do these things with their lives. But the kids are the ones who are kind of paying the price for that. you know. And I think Mary, obviously, as the film goes along, uh, shows them that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting too that he, you know, he has these lines about it's great to be an Englishman in 1910, and then he says this thing about it's the age of men, which again is contrasting with the thing that you brought up before of making fun of the male head of the household. And I also think by moving it to 1910, it's really interesting because this is the 
the beginning of the end of the British Empire, or this is the peak of the British Empire before it's going to start declining. I'm the lord of my castle, the sovereign, the liege. I treat my subjects, servants, children, a wife, with a firm but gentle hand, noblesse oblige. So noblesse oblige is a term I've always heard. I didn't actually know what it meant. Okay. So I, so I looked it up. Noblesse oblige is the inferred responsibility of privileged people to act with generosity and nobility towards those less privileged. Oh, interesting. Okay. Isn't it? I mean, okay. <laughs> interesting. All right. Well, and, and here's here's what I wrote down in all caps at this moment. Mm-hmm. As I'm thinking about, okay, the wife's a suffragette and he's singing about the age of men. Yeah. And I went, is this movie subtly subversive? And, oh, I and, think it's 100% subtly subversive. And, and then I went, this is 1963. Mm-hmm. The Summer of Love is, you know, five years away. Yes. Or four years away. It's like the kids or high school kids who saw this are the hippies four or five years later. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I went, because this is all about poking fun at authority. This is all about the deconstruction of how society is supposed to work is dominated by men and by capitalism, by all these things, all these things that is going to be pushed against in the late sixties and early seventies. Yeah. That's what's happening in this movie, you know? Right. Well, I think the, the, the illusion that people operate under, I think sometimes because it's just easier to believe this is that somehow everybody involved with Disney movies are these like childish people. And it's not true. Uh, There are so many fantastic artists who are involved with Disney movies who throw subversive stuff in there or commentary, social commentary in there. Um, and it's definitely done. And I think that's all through the Mary Poppins movie. And look, this is the cinephiles y'all. So if y'all were sitting, if y'all thinking you were going to come in and Steve and I were just going to love on this movie and just sit here and laugh. We're just uh, going to super califragilistic yeah, through the yeah, whole thing. <laughs> for four parts. You're in the wrong show. You know, we're going to break this thing down. Obviously, going to give its props, give its flowers, but we're also going to analyze certain things in the film as well that uh, maybe uh, were being were comment was commentary on certain things that were going on. Like you said, this is the '60s, right? You know. Well, and and I kind of go like I'm pretty sure that Walt Disney was no fan of the hippies, but I also kind of go maybe you built them a little bit, you know, mm, like yeah. Um, here's my question. So Mr. Banks has walked in spewing this stuff about his life. It's not reality. Does he know that this is all bull? Deep down? That is a good question. I don't, it's, it's a British guy. So (laughs) do you think that they have that kind of self-reflection at that time in that arena? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but the fact that he has to sing about it lets you know that he wants to state it proudly. And usually if you have to say something about how great your situation is, you actually don't think your situation is that great. I I, I think, yeah, that's kind of what I think too. I think he is at the level, there's the level of denial where you know you're in denial and you're just like trying not to think about it. And then there's the other level where you're just really not even aware and that's kind of where i i think he is it's 603 and the heirs to my dominion are scrubbed and tubbed and adequately fed and so i'll pat them on the head and send them off to bed our lordly is the life i lead i like that he finds out that the kids are gone 
And his response, call the police. <laughs> Doesn't go out and look for him himself. Right. He's just like, the police will solve this problem. <laughs> and it, it is a great bit that he's on the phone with the police. Uh, the, a policeman shows up and, and she says, The policeman's here, George. What? Oh, how very prompt. What wonderful service. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good night. I think this cop is a great character. Yes. And because, yeah, because he is trying to tell them something important, and Mr. Banks is not listening. Oh, I wouldn't be too hard on them, sir. They've had a long, weary walk today. Children, come here at once. Again, like you said, subversiveness, right? I mean, yeah. this whole opening intro is how a distant the parents are, how unaware the parents are about these children, how they're not being good parents to these children. And that's why the children are acting the way that they're acting. I'm sorry we lost Katie and Anna, Father. You see, it was windy, and the kite was too strong for us. In a manner of speaking, sir, it was the kite that ran away, not the children. Which is a hint. That is a little hint to go, hey, be easy on these kids. Right. They're scared. Thank you, Constable. I think I can manage this. By the way, the kids are Karen Dutrice, who I already mentioned, and Matthew Garber, um, both of whom had worked together uh, before for oh. Disney on a film called The Faces of Young Thomasina. And, and Disney was just like, we're just going to use them again. They're perfect for this. And then they actually worked together a third time on a movie that I don't know anyone's heard of called The Gnome Mobile or something. Um, and then, sadly, Matthew Garber died in 1977 from complications from hepatitis. Oh, man. That's yeah. oh, okay. Um, and to be, to be clear, they were freaking terrified of David Tomlinson. It sounds like there was a lot of stuff, both good and bad, that was very real for these kids <laughs> that went on as they're making this movie. That's hilarious, man. Okay. And then, again, another hint, which is they're talking about the kite, and they say, Actually, it wasn't a very good kite. We made it ourselves. Perhaps if you helped us to make one. This is the end of the movie. Yeah. The solution to the movie is help the kids with the kite. Right. And it is offered to dad right at the beginning of the movie. And he come, he, he doesn't even hear it. He just rejects it. That interrupts the, the constable and says, Why only last week with me only? I'm very grateful to you, constable, for returning the children. And I'm sure that if you go to the kitchen, cook will find you a plate of something. And that is noblesse oblige. I'm in the privileged position and I'm going to do something nice by being generous to the person in the not privileged position. Right. Right. Hmm. What is the constable's reaction to this? Uh, He's offended by it. Yep. Yeah. Which dad doesn't see at all. Nope. I'm sorry, dear, but when I chose Katie Nana, I thought she would be firm with the children. She looks so solemn and cross. Well, if it never confuse efficiency with a liver complaint. (laughs) which I think is funny. And then, uh, uh, and then she starts talking about how I get, she'll try to do better when she gets the next nanny. Next time, my dear, you've engaged six nannies in the last four months and they've all been unqualified disasters. I quite agree. Choosing a nanny for the children is an important and delicate task. It requires insight, balanced judgment, and an ability to read character. Under the circumstances, I think it might be apropos to take it upon myself to uh, select the next person. Of course. What I love her reaction is like, oh, would you? You know, like just like he is he is lowering himself. Yes. To the position of doing this thing. And everyone is so grateful to him for doing it. Yeah. There is, and there's a song, or there's a thing she says later after Pop after Mary Poppins is 
hired when she says, oh, I would have just messed it all up. So yep. for all her suffragette movement, there is this need to play to the patriarchy exactly. in order to maintain the status and the and where she's at. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and he goes on his song about what a British nanny should be. And this is, you know, the basic philosophy is everything should be run like a bank. Tradition, discipline, and rules must be the tools. Without them, disorder, catastrophe, anarchy. In short, you have a ghastly mess. David Tomlinson, it's like the Rex Harrison is like his in and out of song is just really, really perfect, I think. Yeah. Very natural. Very natural. And then the kids come down yeah. and they want to help. And and again, I mean, I'm just going to say it. Dad is such a dick. He's just such a wow, horrible person. Wow. I mean, he's awful. He's he is. Bit, he's a bit aloof. He's a bit it's aloof. not just aloof. They come down and offer to help and he's insulting and demeaning to them. He's impatient with them when they read the ad. Yeah. The only reason they get to read the ad is that mom is there and, the, and they give their song of what they want from a nanny in contrast to dad's. And right. it is super cute. It is super cute. You're right. If you want this choice position, have a cheery disposition. Jane, I don't. Rosy cheeks, no warts. That's the part I put in. Play games, all sorts. Which, as a parent, you know, there's the thing, it's like when the, the, I'm sure it was like a meme or something. It's like when a three-year-old hands you a toy phone, you say hello, you know, yeah, yeah. like there is a yes ending of parenting that I think is mandatory. When the kids work hard to make the thing for you, you treat that thing with respect. Yes. Even if you're not going to actually send it to the London Times to put in the paper, you go like, well, this is wonderful. Thank you. And he, he goes, thank you. Most interesting. I think we've had quite enough of this nonsense. Please return to the nursery. Yeah. And the crushed reaction from them is just terrible. And then he tears up their ads and throws it in the fireplace. Yeah. It's the next morning and the wind shifts from the east to the west. Uh, Admiral Boone looks down and sees the crowd of potential nannies all dressed in black, all looking pretty scary. I don't understand. They're not what we advertise for at all. And then the wind picks up, and the nannies start flying away. I, I, I love, by the way, there's one nanny in particular where her legs are sort of splayed out as she put, gets pulled away. I mean, it's just, and again, this is a special effects movie, a really complicated special effects movie. That's a lot of nannies flying around on wires. That's a lot of nannies. And it looks, it looks believable for the world they've constructed. Do you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. And so it isn't, it isn't um, stupid. I think it's very funny for how they built it i half expected um margaret is it who's it who plays um the wicked witch of the east um, oh that's that's pages up in my notes now so i can't give you that answer <laughs> no the woman from wizard of oz i i, I oh, I, oh yeah they had a cameo of her kind of riding her bike through the whole thing. oh yeah 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 totally oh. funny. yeah uh, totally that would be funny um well and i think what you said is that it looks right for this thing i think this is part of why the sets are so theatrical yeah because it, if you had been in super, super realistic environment, then this maybe wouldn't look as good. Yeah. Julie Andrews or Mary Poppins's foot position is key to her character as mm. she flies in. By the way, that first image is not actually Julie Andrews. It's yep. a stunt double in the watch. Of course it isn't Julie Andrews. I was looking at it and I was like, wait, that isn't Julie Andrews. So, yeah. yeah. The, the second one, is, when it's closer, is her. Yeah. You are the father of Jane and Michael Banks, are you not? 
Well, well yes, yes, of course. I mean, uh, you brought your references, I presume. May I see them? Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea to my mind. Mary Poppins' ability to steamroll over everybody is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she starts reading from the advertisement, which is, of course, the torn-up ad that Dad threw in the fireplace. And as soon as he sees this, he is completely thrown. Yeah, yeah. He cannot, uh, he sees that it's put together. He walks over and sees the tears that have been taped together. And then he gets lost in this idea of how I ripped it up. And he goes over, he like mimics the movements that he did in tearing the letter up, which I think is really funny. And this is where, this is a wonderful introduction of Julie Andrews, right? The, from the landing, walking right in, commanding the situation, uh, walking right past the maid after she invites her in right to uh, Mr. Banks and owning that conversation. Yep. Uh, and when she says, I, I think references are outdated idea. Uh, I'll see if you need one. And he's like, well, we'll see about that. But then it, me- it immediately controls it walks. Oh, she says, well, I think a trial period is good. Then walks over, sees that he's so caught up in this. And she says, uh, yeah, I think one week will be good. So he thought he was interviewing a nanny. She's interviewing him. So right. I like that switch and change in power. And he goes along with it because I think it, w- it leads to what you said earlier, Steve. Does he believe in the things that he's singing? No. And he might be one, I'm not really down at the core of himself because most of the times women, uh, men hating women or men needing to control women is from a fear of women, right? And so it, you can see that that's an element here because he is easily um pushed around by mary poppins takes the job goes upstairs right to the kids so it was like she's in control so it's a wonderful introduction of julie andrews and again her confidence throughout this introduction just makes you feel like you're in the right place with the right person for the rest of the movie you you just made something click for me which maybe is obvious Mm. to everyone else but i hadn't thought of in quite this way it's not that he likes order it's Mm. that he is totally incapable of handling disorder yes a hundred percent Yes. Is that as soon as things don't go the way that he expects them, mm-hmm. he can't deal. This he, is why he's okay with this crazy old ass neighbor shooting off a fucking cannon from the top <laughs> of the roof of his house, probably threatening his actual possessions uh, that are probably really expensive being shattered because the gentleman has order and he keeps to a mm. time and a punctuality. And I can understand a world like that. So. Well, and he kind of ignores it. You know what I mean? Oh, yes, like, 100%. Just, just yeah. like, I'm not going to pay attention to that, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Eight o'clock. Right. Yeah. Here's the other thing, and this is where I started thinking about it, is like, Mary Poppins is a really weird character. And I keep going like, well, what exactly does she know and what is her plan? The implication is that she knows everything, right? Yes, yes. So she is behaving as if dad's behavior is weird. And she goes like, are you ill? And maybe it should be a trial period and all this stuff. Yeah. But she knows what he's Mary Poppins knows that the note was torn up. She knows that she put it together. She knows exactly why he's reacting the way he is. So her responses to being surprised by his weird reactions can't be true. Yeah. Right. Right. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is where I go. And is that it's, I'd seen something about this somewhere on the internets too, of like, is that Mary Poppins is essentially gaslighting everybody all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because there's all these things happening that she knows they're going to happen. You yeah. Know? yeah. And then she acts surprised. And then later on, she even denies that they ever happened in the first place. Yes. Yes. She's a weird character. I beg your pardon. Are you ill? I hope not. Now about my wages. The reference here is very obscure. 
Very obscure. We must be very clear on that point, mustn't we? Yes, we must indeed. I shall require every second Tuesday off. Every Tuesday. She tells Banks that she's taking this job. Mm -hmm. She walks up, hops up on the banister, and slides up the banister. Yeah, great, great moment, yeah. Uh, and by the way, this is done. The banister has a, a little bucket seat built onto it, which is concealed under her coat that has a thing that slides her up. That's how all this is done. When Jack saw this as we were watching it, he said, this is awesome. <laughs> and she says one of my favorite Mary Poppinsism. Close your mouth, please, Michael. We are not a codfish. Well, don't stand there staring. Best foot forward. Spitspot. Spitspot is the one that I forgot about. Spitspot. So after... P.L. Travers's father died. They went to live with her aunt, mm. who carried a carpet bag and an umbrella and regularly said spit spot. Wow. So that's the influence there. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. George, what on earth are you doing? I thought you were interviewing nannies. I was, I was. You mean you've selected one already? Yes, it's done. It's, it's all done. And she's so impressed that she selected one already. I put it to work straight away. How clever of you. I would have muddled the whole thing. Tell me, will she be firm? Will she give commands? Will she mold our young breed? You know, Winifred, I think she will. <laughs> I think she will. He's on board now. Yeah. yeah. And then I love, again, just little bits that I love. He tells Ellen to dismiss the others. Tell them the, the applicants, the position has been filled. And she walks out to the door, opens it, and there is Andrew the dog. And he, she says, the position has been filled. And the dog walks away. We are in the nursery. Mary Poppins puts her carpet bag on the table, reaches in, and pulls out a hat stand. Yeah. Great magical moment here. So the kids had no idea this was going to happen. Oh, wow. Because the way it works is, is that there is a table that's solid that they've uh, – they did a composite shot later on to make it look mm -hmm. like it isn't solid. So it's a solid, you know, square box. And the carpet bag has a hole in the bottom and the table has a hole in the top. So Mary Poppins puts the carpet bag on the hole with the table and yeah. then she could reach down. But the kids had no idea this was going to happen. So their reactions are totally sincere That's to watching her pull things out of the bag. Yeah. Well, and this is where I go. The kids were in a movie. They were scared of dad. <laughs> there was a whole bunch of things that happened that they just thought were kind of real, you know? Yeah. yeah. We better keep an eye on this one. She's tricky. She's wonderful. By the way, uh, Julie Andrews is wearing a wig yeah. in this movie. And to wear the wig, she had to cut her own hair really short. And that's why her character in Sound of Music has short hair. That was Julie Andrews' idea after seeing her short hair right. in for when she made this film. Okay. And she's looking around and she finds her tape measure because she wants to see how these kids measure up. Mm. Pulls the tape measure up to Michael's height. Just as I thought. Extremely stubborn and suspicious. <laughs> I am not. See for yourself. Which is what it says on the tape measure. Mm. Jane stops laughing as she gets measured. Mm. Rather inclined to giggle, doesn't put things away. <laughs> and they ask about her and she goes, oh, very well. And she rolls up the tape measure and it says... As I expected, Mary Poppins practically perfect in every way. <laughs> Quite an ego on you there, Mary. Yeah, very <laughs> confident. Uh, she is very, very confident. Uh, and they had requested playing games on their ad, and she says, well, our first game is called... Well Begun is Half Done. I don't like the sound of that. Otherwise entitled, Let's Tidy Up the Nursery. I told you she was tricky. 
And she goes into the song Spoonful of Sugar. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap, the job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see. Which is another great song. It's a classic Disney connected to all things Disney song. Yeah. Here's how this song came about. Julie Andrews, there was some song, I don't know what it was, of the Sherman Brothers that she didn't like. Oh. And she told Walt, I don't like this song. And I think it was for this scene. And they were like, oh, crap, but what do we do? And they go home. And the, the day that Julie Andrews said, there's this song I don't like, is the day that Bob Sherman's kid got the polio vaccine in school. Okay. And the polio vaccine was not a shot. It was on a sugar cube that you ate. Oh. And that is the origin of a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. This is also one of the first sort of, we're right at the beginning of animatronics. And so there's the animatronic bird on Julie Andrews hand, which she has massive wires going down her hand. And there's a whistle duet. For a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. Medicine go down. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. And they hired, as you do, a professional whistler to be the whistle of the bird. Right. And then they recorded it and felt that the bird sounded too professional. <laughs> And Julie Andrews said, I can whistle. And so that's her. Oh, wow. Okay. So she's the whistle for the bird. That's great. Um, and what we see is all sorts of magic. And all of these are different effects, different ways. Some of them are reverse shots. Some of them are green screens. Some of them are animatronics. And Julie Andrews is snapping and making things happen. And then Jane realizes that she can snap and make things happen. And one of the gags of the song is Michael can't snap. <laughs> Finally, he gets it to work and then ends up trapped in a closet, which again, this kid, Matthew, really was stuck in this closet and it was kind of, it was scared. <laughs> I will say this is, this sequence is where you see some of the limits of Stevenson as a director. Mm. Uh, and it comes up later too, but it kind of comes up in a number of spots in the movie. Too many shots of Mary Poppins reacting mm. to the little things. And they're not, how can I say this? They're not connected in a way that makes sense. Like you're seeing her reacting to things in a, on a journey and they're getting exponentially bigger in terms of the reaction or changing the attitude of the reaction. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no journey. You see, I always think if you're going to go back to someone who's reacting non-verbally to something, you've got to put that actor on the journey non-verbally of what they're reacting. Of course. Right. And so with, with Mary Poppins, it's the constant, when they go through this whole song, every time you look at her, it is the tilt, it is the, mm, it's the, mm, 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 and it's constant. Uh, and it doesn't feel like there's a journey here. And I think Stevenson is certainly a capable director, but you know, every capable director has one great movie in them, but it doesn't mean that they, you can't still spot the limitations for them of why they couldn't consistently be a great director. And so I think these cop out uh, shots show you that he, you know, doesn't hundred percent understand Like you don't need to do these over and over again. And the editor as well, obviously who edits the film to put that in there. I, I thought it was unnecessary uh, to do it, or I thought they dropped the ball in not creating a story for Mary as she's reacting to the kids embracing this power that she has, you know? 
It's so funny that you say that because the, the I would just realized that the thing I know that you were doing right before we started recording mm. was editing. <laughs> yes. And and yes. you have pointed out just a classic editing conundrum mm. of because it so, so part of part of why you cut is that the the reason you're supposed to cut is for a positive reason, which is I want to show Julie Andrews to have this reaction. Right. You know, and, and and everything you say is exactly right. Every reaction should be connected to the story, should build the character, yeah. it should advance things, they should be specific. But part of why you also are cutting to a reaction shot is you have to cut away from the other shot because, <laughs> yes, yes. because the actor yeah. dropped their line or did something wrong and I can't be in that shot anymore and I have to cut to something. Right. And it's a frequently one of the things you do as an editor is you're scrolling through every single take trying to find an eye flick or a head tilt or something that you could cut to that will have meaning with the thing that you're cutting from. And I don't know how they got to where they got to, but I think your point is totally accurate that they're not. Well, and I think that's the frustrating part of this, Steve, is when you're analyzing a director of a film, how much is it the director and how much is it the editor, right? And certainly in sequences like this, did the director give the approval for these particular shots to be used in this particular sequence? Or, well, like you said, was he just a hired hand uh, that was well-trusted amongst the Disney, amongst the halls of Disney? And the ed- and the and the editor went in and just did what needed to be done in certain things and did, did, and Walt had the final word. I don't know. So when no. you're analyzing editing in a movie, it sometimes can be difficult because you're not sure if that's the editor doing that or if it's the uh, director doing that, directing the editor to edit that way. And so, you know, well, and, and you don't know the, you don't know the footage. Well, this is why it's like right. when we, we've done, yeah. you know, when I've done when we did like the reviews for the Oscar movies, and you'd say, well, "Steve, as a director, what do you think of the direction?" And I'm like, "I don't know," <laughs> you know, because it's a really hard question to answer. Because it's like, well, what you know, it's like, well, what did the director do? Yeah. You know, because the direct because because you yeah. you know the cinematographer's in charge of the camera work, and the actors in charge right. of the acting, and the writers wrote the script, and the editors did the editing theoretically if all those guys are awesome the director maybe just sat there quietly and did nothing you know yeah and this is the hard time this is the hard thing for me when i review movies it's like okay well because we're much more aware now than we were in the past of all the numerous jobs on a film set when i speak about the directing how accurate am i if i don't know what was going on behind the scenes of the set so it's going to be quite difficult to figure out The, the film turns out to be great but, you know, we've heard many stories, Steve, of films that were terrible in their first cut and editors went in or teams of editors went in and saved the movie. Yeah. But the director gets all the credit, right? It ain't the editor getting $5 million a movie or $20 million a movie. So those are those things that you're just like, man, I wish they would just be a yeah, little I, more honest about that. I mean, well, and that's why it's like if I listen to a commentary tracker here behind the scenes and I hear the reasoning of this is how we got here, well, then I can speak. Right. This is how the, this is how the decisions were made. But sometimes you don't know. And like this is why, you know, when the, the best editing Oscar to me is always just completely impossible yeah. because I don't know what they started with. You right. know, it's like, right. you know, a movie that was definitely saved in post and by music is Star Wars. Yeah. And it's like how much of the greatness is just how well edited it is in fucking John Williams, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, but, but as you said, the director gets the credit, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, we, John Williams, Steve, fucking John Williams, man. fucking John Williams. I mean, John Williams yeah. is such a huge percentage of the greatness of some of the greatest films of all time. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to, it, there's no way to un, underestimate his con- contribution to. Yeah. Film. People don't really understand 
some, no, I'm not saying it. How can I say it? Some people don't really understand how a score completely changes the mood and the feeling of a scene if you don't have the right score. Like I was on YouTube the, uh, yesterday and I randomly came upon a shot, a uh, scene from The Flash, the most recent movie, The Flash. And someone went in and edited Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League score from Junkie XL mm. underneath the scene with Ben Affleck and that whole sequence that he has at the beginning of the movie. And it is a completely different sequence and a darker sequence because of the score that's being used. And so those things are really important when you're looking at Steven Spielberg movies. Would we revere them as much as we do if John Williams' score wasn't also attached to the movie? You know, would you love Indiana Jones as much if that theme song didn't inspire you the way it does when you hear it? No, these things are huge. I mean, I used to have, we, when I used to teach editing, we had a scene because we just had this footage. It was like a scene from Monk. Oh, yeah. And my assignment was, it was just him and Stanley Camel, who was in my movie Stonebrook, mm-hmm. uh, who is the psychiatrist talking. Mm-hmm. And, and my assignment was, okay, turn this into a different scene. And people turned it into a horror movie. People turned it into a thriller. People turned, Because you change the music, you change yeah. the way it's edited, and all the meaning is different. You know? Yeah. Anyway, it's <laughs> an already long podcast. Um, but we're going to head off to the park grab our hats and coats. And I love that now they all get on the banister and slide it down multiple levels with Ellen watching. It's really cool. Ellen shockingly watching. Yeah. And we cut to Bert, who is now a screever drawing in chalk drawings on the ground. Yeah. And his first line is, Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jiminy, Jim, Jim, Chiroo. I does what I likes and I likes. Well, I do. Bert is the antithesis of George Banks. Yes. Yes. Free spirit. Doing what he wants to do. Yeah. yeah, Well, and again, this is why I go, this is the middle of the 60s. This is the rejection of the World War II generation is going to come, who are the George Bankses of the world. And Bert is the artist who likes what he does and does what he likes. Right. And as he is drawing, a shadow comes into his frame and he recognizes it as he draws around it that that is Mary Poppins. Yeah. And obviously, Mary Poppins and Bert have a previous relationship. Mary Poppins. It's nice to see you again, Bert. I mean, they've hung out together. They've hung out. That's all I can say. That's all I can gather from their <laughs> Mary Poppins is taking us to the park. To the park? I don't find no Mary Poppins. Other nannies take children to the park. When you're with Mary Poppins, suddenly you're in places you've never dreamed of. And quick as you can say, Bob's your uncle, the most unusual things begin to happen. I'm sure I haven't the faintest idea what you're talking about. This is what I mean by the gaslighting. It's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, and I love all of Dick Van Dyke's physicality. I love oh, yeah. him doing the aerialist and the punting on the Thames and all that stuff. So cute. Super cute. And then, but she says, we're not going to do anything like that at all. And he goes, okay, I could do it. I can make some magic happen. You think. You wink. You do a double blink. You close your eyes and jump. And him and the two kids jump onto the chalk painting and it's no good. It's an interesting thing because obviously Bert has seen and has a relationship with Mary Poppins. He is also a fantastical character in in ways. Yes. So when she comes around and says, oh, Bert, you make things more complicated than they need to be, right? 
So Bert has some magic to him, and clearly he's probably centuries old as an entity or a spirit, maybe on yeah. the planet. That's what I think. Because Mary is Mary comes in. Mary's like high plains drifter, man. Mary comes out of the haze, <laughs> totally disappears at the end into the haze and into the clouds. Yep. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Eastwood was influenced by that when he when he uh, wrote high, or when he shot High Plains Drifter. But you look at this situation and you're like, oh, yeah, this is fascinating. They're these old spirits that have been in the world for a while. And Bert, in a way, is like John the Baptist. And she's wow. a bit of Jesus, like a savior. You know, in clearly a, a savior. Dude, so you just connected High Plains Drifter to Mary Poppins. And now you took it to Jesus and John the Baptist. I'm, I'm not saying you're not wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's the one that tells us someone is coming. Yeah, we have a. You're right. No, you're right? right. We have a close up of his mouth, and he's the one saying, "This is something that's been here before." Right. So this idea, and of course, Christ when he appeared, you know, if you believe, obviously, I'm, I'm speaking from my own belief. Um, he was the second, in essence, the second coming of God because God had been around and had been talking to people all through the Old Testament, but coming actually onto the earth, Jesus is the next step in his communication with his creations, and clearly, Bert is saying. An, an energy is coming that has been here before. And so if you believe in the Holy Trinity, Jesus is part of the Holy Trinity, which is part of God. So that's Mary Poppins, in essence, is that spirit that's coming onto the surface, onto, onto the earth. And Bert knows she's coming and tells us, um, because he does speak to us in the camera, but he's speaking to the people around and speaking to himself, something is coming that has been here before. So in a way, she's he's John the Baptist. Not that he's gonna, you know, get killed or beheaded or anything, but like he is the harbinger for what she is, you know. So I think there is a whole PhD dissertation to be done <laughs> comparing Mary Poppins to the story of Jesus. Come on, bring it. Why do you always complicate things that are really quite simple? Give me your hand, please, Michael. Don't slouch. One, two. Here is my question. Mm-hmm. Was Mary ever intending to go to the park? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, I think as soon as she got squared away, met the children, and felt it was the right situation, I think she was always intending to go to the park, yes. No, no, no. I mean the real park, not oh, going to an animated oh, oh. world. She told the kids we're going to go to the park. If they didn't run into Bert, did she know she was going to run into Bert and do this? Yes. Thing? I think of she knew course she, was she did. run into Bert, of course. Yeah. This is why I go like she's the weirdest character in the world. Oh, she yeah. acts reluctant about everything and a bit grumpy. But it was all part of her plan in the first place, yes. right? Right, yes. This is Bizarre. what makes her interesting is that she's mysterious in that way. And then we go into this animated sequence with our real figures going around. And I think it is amazing. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, it holds up. It totally does. This is, by the way, it's not shot in front of a blue screen or a green screen. This shot in front of a sodium vapor screen. And the way this works, if I understand it correctly, <laughs> is it's a big white wall. And they put a very specific color yellow light. So they're shining yellow lights on this white wall. Yeah. And then the camera has a prism in it so that the prism splits out some of the light. And it's actually recording on two rolls of film at the same time. Mm. One of the rolls of film is just the yellow light. And no, that color isn't used on anybody in the thing. Yeah. So what it creates is a mat, a moving mat where it's a, just a blank background with yeah. the cutouts of the humans going, moving around in front of it. Yeah. And then it's on that mat that they do all the animation. 
and, and as we go into this animated world, I mean, obviously, Disney knows a bit about animation, and the person who's in charge of this, who's doing the main animation of the characters, is one of Disney's nine old men, which were the great men of Disney animation, and this is Frank Thomas, who is in charge of the animation here. Mary Poppins, you look beautiful. Do you really think so? Cross my heart, you do. Like the day I met you. You look fine too, Bert. That is Julie Andrews's first shot on the movie. And as you said, this is her first film, and it was Walt's decision to start with this sequence because he thought this was the closest to a Broadway number on a set and that he felt this would make Julie most comfortable. <laughs> it's so stupid. It's so, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to disrespect. We're actors, man. You know what? We'll act in a, a black box or sure. on Broadway or anywhere. So it's like you don't need to make it comfortable for us. We'll adapt to it. So, I, it's, But that's Disney for you, man. Well, I like that he thought about it, though. You know? Sure, sure. And, sure. of course, this could be a Disney myth or whatever, but both uh, Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews said that they felt incredibly safe in the Disney environment, that there was an amazing spirit of of both super, super hard work, because all this yeah. is really hard work, I'm and sure. really fun play. Um, uh, after we send the kids off to go find the fair, uh, we go into Jolly Holiday, which is yeah. another great song. That I absolutely love. When Mary holds your end, you feel so grand. Your heart starts beating like a big brass band. <laughs> They're all great songs. Uh, they end up in a farm and the farm animals sing. And the geese that are singing are voiced by Marnie Nixon. Oh, yay. Who did uh, West Side Story. Did West, yes, yeah, she did West Side Story. She dubbed Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. Uh, she is the great unsing singer of Hollywood. There should be a documentary on Marnie Nixon. I would literally look one up to see if I couldn't find if there was one because there should. totally should be. All these streaming services, y'all can make a fucking Marnie Nixon documentary. At one point, they put down their Mary's Parasol and Dick's Cane. And the choreographies, by the way, are Dee Dee Wood and her husband, Mark Bro. And, and at, at this point, as they're choreographing all this, Dee Dee kind of was just talking to her husband and goes, you know, it'd be really cool. God, it'd be, wouldn't it be cool if the parasol and the cane could dance like Bert and Mary? But I guess that's impossible. And someone overheard them and said, said basically, never say anything is impossible in a Disney movie. <laughs> and it just became a challenge. Like, we'll show you. And so yeah. that's what, exactly what happens is the cane and the parasol dance. Uh, they they balance on turtles going across a pond. That's just the two of them yeah. on blocks. And I love Dick Van Dyke is just so good at silliness. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And maybe this is why they chose Dick Van Dyke over Danny Kay, because, you know, Inspector General and num a number of the films, Danny is pretty spastic. Uh, Danny's yeah. like the, Danny is Jerry Lewis. Uh, you know, there's a connection. You can go a straight mm -hmm. line from Danny Kay to Jerry Lewis. Whereas Dick Van Dyke is a little more composed and radiates a little bit more of a masculine energy while also being able to have fun in these playful moments. Because there's a moment when they're singing to each other, right? And and Mary and Bert has said all these wonderful things about Mary and the farm animals. But they go back on the bridge and Mary Nar starts to sing about Bert. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with you, Bert. Gentlemen like you are few. A vanishing breed, that's me. It's going to bring up the same moment. I, Where are you? Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when Mary brings up these these positive things about Bert, she is friend zoning Bert like a mother. Exactly. You'd never think of pressing your advantage. 
Forbearance is the hallmark of your creed. True. A lady needn't fear when you are near. Your sweet gentility is crystal clear. And Bert is like, there's like a look on Dick Van Dyke's face that is one of like, you know, I'm nice, but I ain't that nice. You know, let me let me take you out or something. I am a dude. Like, yeah, come I'm a dude. On. I'll make out with you right now. Don't make me do it. You know, so you, you see him in that reaction. Um, and I think that's what they wanted. Still somewhat more masculine energy. Nothing as Danny Kay. I think Danny was great, but Danny was more of a spastic energy. So it's just different. A little more staid is what I would say. S-T-A-I-D. A little more staid energy from Dick Van Dyke. I, I think that moment is so interesting because I, and I, and they said this in, some of the stuff I was reading or watching mm. about the film, but that they wanted to make damn sure that people understood that this is a platonic relationship. <laughs> well, tell Bert that because yeah. he certainly wasn't in on that. I, well, that's what I think. It's like he is clearly going, come on. Yeah, no, <laughs> Bert's very clear, you know. I mean, and honestly, Mary Poppins, I mean. I mean, Mary's a hottie. Let's not yeah. lie now. I, I never thought of Julie Andrews this way, but watching the movie this time around, and I don't mean to make anybody uncomfortable, but she's a hottie. So no, she is not, with you know, magical Bert, powers. With magical powers, but what else is she going to pull out of that carpet case? Bert, exactly. Bert, you know what I'm oh saying? Oh my god! Oh my! So Bert, <laughs> you know, I'm sure Bert knows too. I'm sure Bert's had a thing for Mary for centuries, bro. Yeah, and it's yep. never been able to come to fruition, and she knows it. It's Mary Poppins. She knows it. But oh yeah never going to be consummated so so we head into the restaurant and are immediately <laughs> greeted I by trying to get us out of trouble all right steve go ahead <laughs> head into the restaurant <laughs> and immediately are greeted by the penguin waiters uh. with the kazoo music <laughs> a couple things about this one is initially this was supposed to be a muted trombone oh. playing the theme of the waiters but when they were demoing it to walt disney Richard Sherman pulls out his kazoo and says, well, this is going to be a muted trombone, but here I'll play with kazoo. And Disney loved the kazoo. And so that is Richard Sherman playing his kazoo. Almost like a scratch track. Yeah. 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 And as I said, when they were writing the songs, they had a guy doing sketches and the guy did sketches of real human waiters in tuxedos. Mm. And they showed it to Walt and Walt says, you know, it's funny. Waiters have always reminded me of penguins and walks out of the room. And that's how we get there. <laughs> I bet the animators were like, son of a... We know what that means. We He's like a mafia boss. You know what he means when he says, you know what? Waiters have always reminded me of penguins. And then just walks out of the room and you're like, son of a bitch. We're going to have to direct them. We're going to have to animate them as penguins, aren't we? Well, it's funny. It's funny you say that because I actually think that penguins are probably easier to animate than humans. Maybe. Because they're more... They can be more theatrical. Um, And the... Waiters come out and they're offering everything to Mary for free. And I love that they're saying, you know, Mary is our favorite person. And Bert goes, right, you are. And then he starts listing all of these other women that apparently he has brought to the same restaurant because all the penguins are nodding. Yeah. And going, yeah. It's true that Mivis and Sybil have ways that are winning, and Prudence and Gwendolyn set your are spinning. Phoebe, delightful. Maud is disarming. Janice? Felicia? Lydia? Charming. Cynthia's dashing. Vivian, sweet. Stephanie, smashing. Priscilla, a treat. Veronica? Millicent? Agnes? And Jane? Convivial company, diamond again. So, A, this was the hardest thing for Dick Van Dyke to learn in the whole movie. Oh, I'm sure. Which makes sense. B, I think this is a direct reaction to her, as you saying, friend zoning him oh, totally. in the previous moment in the song. Yeah. And she's 
not happy about it. No. See her getting upset about it, mentioning all these other women he's brought here. So she likes to be adored um, and uh, also have the power to say no, and which, of course, is everyone's right, of course. But she likes to be adored, uh, and I think she's enjoying it a little bit at Bert's expense. I'm not going to deny that, you know, so... Uh, Bert trying to, in, and Bert trying to get back at her in, 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 the, in the way a man might get back at someone is to mention all, you know, you may not be interested in me, but all these other girls are interested in me. So, you know, I'm still, I'm still a catch. So to yeah, I, I bring a lot of ladies to this animated penguin restaurant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, wrong, though. you're the best. <laughs> look, Mary Poppins is a really weird character. Yeah. No, you're right. She is, she is among the most unknowable characters we've ever done in any film on the cinephiles. Well, this is what makes her performance even more incredible, Steve, because most people, love fantastic performances from actors because they can see the nuance, they can see the levels, they can see the evolution and progression of them as a character, their arc. But with Mary, there there really isn't much of an arc with Mary. Mary shows up. She's a bit unknowable. She's a mystery. She's got these impulses. She says these things and she commands respect from everybody she comes in contact with. And she's clearly very beloved by everybody in this magical world. So, you know, there are no obstacles or challenges for Mary. She is very much in control of her world. You know? Well, and and she is for someone as beloved, mm. she is harsh, yes, and cold Can and be. unemotional and distant. And I mean, she's sure. strange. Yeah. She's a strange character. Anyway, next we go into we throw some salt on the ground and get a great dance number with uh, Dick Van Dyke and the Pen- Penguins. Do you know how much formal dance training Dick Van Dyke had before? I do not in this know movie? how much. Zero. Wow. That's even more impressive. He's amazing. Yeah, it's like Debbie Reynolds, right? Debbie had no dance training before she did nope. Singing in the Rain with, yep. with Gene Kelly. And, you know, she had to work really, really hard. Sinatra, too. Sinatra mm. was, ter- by his own admission, terrible dancer. And Gene was able to get him to do decent stuff in the movies that they did. And I bring up Gene Kelly here on accident, but we should bring it up because uh, Burt Dancing with the Penguins. Yeah. This is rotoscoping. This has been around since the early 1900s. But it was Gene Kelly and Anchors Away, 19 years before this film came out, who pressured Hanna-Barbera to let him use Jerry the Mouse to right. do this sequence. You know, that's another guy there should be massive documentary about, says Gene Kelly, because he changed so many things in the totally. entertainment business. And that influenced what this sequence here with Bert and the Penguins. So, yeah. And there's just, you know, talk about it's a game of inches. There's so many great moments in this sequence yeah. with the cane, with the pulling up down the pants. So he has penguin legs with right. all of the kicks and them jumping over things and landing on his feet and all the bows and all this stuff. It's just so much fun. Yeah. And, and by the way, I think Dick Van Dyke is great at reacting to animations that aren't there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, and it's later on. We're on the merry-go-round riding on horses. I didn't realize and had never noticed each one of the horses face is a caricature of their rider. Oh, I did. So Dick Van Dykes has like a long chin. Very nice. Very nice indeed. If you don't want to go nowhere. Who says we're not going anywhere? And now we ride our merry-go-round horses off of the merry-go-round into the middle of a fox hunt, (laughs) have a whole (laughs) sequence with a fox uh, who is Irish being chased by the British. It's all very funny. We end up into a horse race. And who wins the horse race by cheating, I think, because she wasn't at the beginning of the horse race. Clearly, Mary Poppins did not actually win that horse race, but they do win and everyone celebrates. 
We need to explore your hatred of Mary Poppins a little bit. Maybe in a short, but let's keep going. Let's keep going. I, I just find her a fascinating. I love Mary Poppins. I totally love her. Okay. It's just an odd person, though. <laughs> well, and I love that, that that it's after the race, and they're all asking her questions, but not letting her answer. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. While Bert and the two kids are eating candy apples, and as they had to do many takes of this, they finally went to the kids and said, you know, we could make any flavor of candy apple you want. And so the kids had a root beer candy apple. They had a, you know, like they kept bringing them other things to keep the kids amused because all this stuff was taking this so long. Oh, I'm sure. And as she is not able to answer their questions, they say, There probably aren't words to describe your emotion. Now, 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 gentlemen, please. On the contrary, there's a very good word. Am I right, Bert? Tell them what it is. Tell them what it is, baby. Yeah. And we go into supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. This is, this is one of those songs there. The first time you hear it, man, you, you never forget it, dude. It's great. It is a great joyous raucous song and we tell these little stories that go back to the chorus um and we have a couple things about this one is is that there's like the town band in the background and it was really important to the sherman brothers that they had to get their very very excellent professional musicians to not play perfectly Mm. to beat the town band in the background Mm. and then the voices of the town band two of them are julie andrews and richard sherman are are (laughs) people singing in the background the, there's a moment uh, which is one of Karen's favorite moments, which is... You know, you can say it backwards, which is docious alley, expiistic, fragicali rufus, but that's going a bit too far, don't you think? So when the cat has got your tongue, there's no need for dismay. Just summon up this word and then you've got a lot to say. But better use it carefully or it can change your life. For example? Uh, yes? One night I said it to me girl, and now me girl's me wife. It's lots of fun. You know, I will say this, Steve. One of my greatest fears in life, besides being AI, thrown into an animated world, <laughs> no. <laughs> besides AI, which is happening, so we're all going to be enslaved soon, and uh, and the Simeon uprising, is dementia. That's one of my greatest mm. fears. Wow, because I, I don't know where we're going with this. Yeah, okay. just uh, dementia and uh, throat cancer because I talk so much, and so and then dementia, of course, because I pride myself on my memory of things, even though I'm not. I'm getting worse at it as I get older. Um, Supercalifragilisticexpial is one of those songs that if I ever forget it, then I know I'm, I'm deathly afraid that dementia is coming. I have certain songs that I remember above everything else. And I fear that if I ever forget those things or any of those songs and the titles and the words, um, I have manufactured in my mind that it's the beginning of dementia. So Having no knowledge of this disease and other than what people have told me in life, um, this is something that I've created a fear of in my mind. So, wow. yeah, but this is one of those songs because this is one of the first songs I remember singing, um, standing by the record player as a young child. My parents had bought me a double LP of Disney songs. This was on there. So was Bibbidi Bobbidi Boop, which is what I remember as well. And I would stand there in my cloth uh pajamas uh, pajama set and would stand there with the headphones on singing the songs annoyingly i'm sure to my parents as as the song but supercalifragilistic is what is one of those ones that like i was probably seven six years old when i heard that song and i was like i i, I gotta know 
you know, I, I, I will always remember that song. So that's what I connect to it. So feel free to cut this out, but I'm just saying. No, I just we, we've gone to some dark places in our discussion of Mary Poppins. I think this is a darker movie than people think. Mary <laughs> your your possible impending dementia is certainly a dark one. <laughs> What's going to be so tragic is that you actually are never going to forget those songs. Unfortunately, those are the only things you're going to remember. So oh, you're no. just going to be trapped in a world of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, repeating it endlessly. He was like, hey, you know your horror? Let me one up it for you. <laughs> That's what friends do. Um, anyway, as we leave this terribly dark song, um, they, which goes into a big rousing finale. Yeah. And it starts to rain and the chalk drawings start to melt. And now we're back home. Yeah. A bunch of these sort of end in this sad, kind of sad way. I'm telling um, you, this is a darker film than people think. By the way, after shooting this, the the rain sequence in the back in the quote unquote real world, uh, Julie Andrews got really sick, high fever. She had double vision. Wow! And uh, Walt had put her up in a very very kind of storybook house while they're shooting the movie, and so she went took a couple of days off of work because she was sick. And Walt came by and visited her and gave her uh, stuffed animals while she was sick. And she said she just absolutely loved it. it was like a little English cottage in the valley in, you know, in the Los Angeles area. Years later, she comes back to L.A. to shoot Princess Diaries directed by Gary Marshall. Oh, yeah. And Gary Marshall invited her to his house. Same house. <laughs> he was living in the house that she lived in when she shot Mary Poppins. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Isn't it? Oh um, so we're back up in the nursery and we're drying our clothes. And she says, Do we have to, Mary Poppins? People who get their feet wet must learn to take their medicine. And the kids are resisting. And she pours some red medicine into one spoon and immediately pours green medicine into the next spoon. Mm. And the kids scream because... They were really surprised by this. They did not know this was a practical effect in this bottle. I don't know quite how you do it. Um, and like a lot of things, they were totally shocked. Mm. I like, by the way, that Mary Poppins's uh, medicine is rum punch. Yeah. Oh, we couldn't possibly go to sleep. So many lovely things happened today. Did they? Mary Poppins, don't you remember? You won the horse race. A respectable person like me in a horse race. How dare you suggest such a thing? I saw you do it. Now, not another word, or I shall have to summon a policeman. Is that clear? <laughs> this is just a strange person, man. I, you could say I don't like Mary Poppins. I totally do like her, but this yeah. is a weird thing to do. It because, is. Well, what's the implication here? She doesn't want to get found out, I think. And having the kids talk about it, having her agree with it. Because if she agrees with it, then the kids feel even more that they saw what they saw and more adamant about it and will tell everybody they know because children don't usually keep their mouths closed. And so you know what, I think that's why she's doing it. You know what I, th- you know, it just occurred to me that mm. part of it is it's like bing bong in inside right. is that, is that when you're a kid, what she, what Mary Poppins want and bing bong, by the way, the worst, <laughs> just start, the, uh, oh. <laughs> um, is that, is that they, what Mary Poppins wants is when the kids are adults, they can have a memory about some crazy thing in a fair and a merry-go-round and yeah. a horse race, but not really think that it was real. We probably just kind of imagined most of it. Yeah. You know, and so Mary Poppins not confirming it now allows the bing bong effect to happen later on. Yeah. I guess that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And then they refuse to go to sleep and she sings the stay awake song to basically knock them out. 
So even her songs are gaslighting because she's telling them to stay awake as they fall asleep. It's a complicated figure, that Mary Poppins. <laughs> uh, it's the next morning, and Admiral Boom is getting ready to put out a double charge to really shake things up. Mom is getting gathering spoiled eggs to throw at 10 Downing Street at the Prime Minister's home. And Cook is happy, and Ellen is happy. Everybody is having a good time, except Dad. Hmm. Even the bird singing outside is bothering Dad. I'm so sorry you're not feeling well this morning, George. Who said I'm not feeling well? I'm fit as a fiddle. I just don't understand why everyone's so confoundedly cheerful. Dad is not a nice person. Well, he just can't, like you said, he can't handle things where he's not in control. Because he doesn't know why things are happening, it agitates him. Winifred, will you be good enough to explain this unseemly hullabaloo? I don't think there's anything to explain, do you? It's obvious that you're out of sorts this morning. The children just came in to make you feel better. I should like to make one thing quite clear once and for all. I am not out of sorts. I am in a perfectly equable mood. I do not require being made to feel better. He does not like being told that he's out of sorts. No. And in the midst of this, they realize that it's almost time for Admiral Boom to fire his cannon. And so everyone's running around. And I love that David Tomlinson just keeps talking through the whole thing as this massive explosion happens and the piano comes sliding towards him and he, you know, like he puts his coffee down on the piano, plays the piano, the piano goes away, totally unruffled by any of this. I think it's done really well. I suggest you have this piano repaired. When I sit down to an instrument, I like to have it in tune. But George, you don't play. Madam, that is entirely beside the point. I think that sums up so much of his character. Yeah. I don't actually play the piano, but it has to be perfect regardless. Yeah. This is important because I, I think, I'm not going to say this. I think it goes to what we were ta- we've been talking about throughout the whole episode, right? This idea that for him, the world of men makes sense and he can function within it, which is why the piano moving around doesn't bother him, why yeah, all, you know, uh, the, puts the coffee down on it. All that the stuff that uh, boom, the double charge, he's totally cool with it all, sits down calmly. You know, doesn't even stop the sculpture from tipping around behind him. He's just doing his thing. But the kids being uh, happy, the kids doing these things, the kids being outspoken, his wife being more outspoken, the maids being happy. The world of women is what he cannot handle. The world of children is what he cannot handle. But the world of men he can handle. The world of men he knows how to uh, ride the ups and downs and the weird stuff that men do because that's what he's been used to. But the world of women and children uh, unsettle him and throw him off. And he has no idea of how to function within it. So he must yell at everybody to get back in order so that he can function in it. You know, it's it's so funny because I literally just had to have a conversation with my son, Mm. which I've had with him many times. And he he tended to not want to listen to this particular kind of conversation. But this time he actually was really listening to me Mm. because there was something going on that wasn't making him that he was going to have to do that wasn't going to make him happy. Yeah. And I was like, look, most of life is dealing with stuff <laughs> yeah. that isn't what you wanted, you know, yeah. like most of the, the amount of times you get to go, hey, I am doing exactly what I want to be doing at this <laughs> moment. That's not that much. Yeah. You know, the idea that you can control life and have it, you know, do what you want it to do and be the way you want it to be. That is an illusion. Yeah. And believing in that just leads to you getting repeatedly hurt. It'll lead you to be depressed. Yeah, because the world is always changing and you rarely get what you want, no matter how hard you work for it. 
I I saw one of those. I'm sure you see these things all the time. It's like BuzzFeed seven things that lead to a healthy mental outlook or whatever. (laughs) I think four out of the seven, because I saw one like yesterday, Mm -hmm. were all what we're talking about. Yeah. That's okay. I guess it is what it is. You know, like the sort of accepting that the world is going to be chaotic and weird and painful and difficult. And that's what it is. Yeah. You know? Um, Well, and, and what's interesting about this is that this is what the Sherman brothers and Walt Disney and all the creators of this movie added to the PL Travers anecdotes. PL Travers traveled to the, to the horse race and had Mm. the guy laughing on the ceiling and did, you know, they, those things all existed, but the thing that didn't exist was mom and dad. And in particular dad is that what the movie is really about, you know, we talk about a character going on a journey and that the character has to change. And I remember when we did Back to the Future, and it was like, you know, Marty doesn't really change that much, even though right. he's the main character of the film. Right. The character that changes is Dad. That's who has to go right. on, has he's to evolve. Yeah, yeah. That's the same thing here. The kids don't change. Hmm. Mary Poppins doesn't change. Right. Bert doesn't change. Dad has to change. Yeah. Yeah. That's what this movie, that is the emotional core of the movie, which is why the movie about the making of this movie is called saving Mr. Banks mm. because it is about dad. Again, I'm spoiling things that are, that you're going to watch hopefully when you watch the film, but it, but, it, but that is what really is the trouble of the movie. And at the moment that we've, that dad is walking out to his, the life I lead theme, wanting to control everything that he cannot control, I think is a good point to end part one of our exploration of Mary Poppins. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles or on Twitter at Cine underscore files, The Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. And if you want to subscribe to the show, you can do it at all your subscribing places like YouTube and Spotify and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts in particular. And if you happen to leave a review, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, you might very well hear your review read on the next episode of The Cinephiles. Um, and if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, of course, on Patreon. The Cinephiles Advisory Board is who picked Mary Poppins for us mm-hmm. to do. So that's a great place to go. You can also hear all of our Cinephile shorts at patreon.com slash the Cinephiles. Uh, and if you want to buy or stream Mary Poppins along with every other film we've ever reviewed, you can do it at cinephiles.net. John, how would people find you? Uh, you can always find me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says, and all my other podcasts, The Hot Mike, The Geek Buddies, um, and uh, The Outlaw Nation Podcast Network that's out there for you all to subscribe to. So I think that is it for this week, and we will be back next week with part two, maybe concluding our exploration of Mary Poppins right here on The Cinephiles. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.